0: If you're one of the people that love this show, make sure you go over to holyfoolproductions.com and check out our home. You can read articles. You can see my personal journals straight out of the typewriter. You can see the weekly link roundup of all the interesting things I run across. You can see drawings. You can see books recommended for the book club. Or if you're like me and you like things simple, you can just have it sent right to your inbox by signing up for the newsletter, which goes out almost every day. And of course, you can help support this show through either monthly subscriptions or generous one-time donations, all at hoyfulproductions.com. I was listening to All Things Must Pass, the George Harrison album, because I saw you posting about that on Facebook. And you're right, man. That album's incredible.
1: Yeah, I don't know why it's taken me 39 years to figure out that he'd written that album and to look at the chronology after the Beatles and look at the other Beatles too and listen to the stuff that they've done. And um, I don't know. I just, uh, I've, been, I've been killing my wife with that album, and just playing it incessantly.
0: I didn't know that Bob Dylan was, well, he co wrote one of the songs and then wrote one of them completely. I didn't even know they had anything to do with each other.
1: Yeah, and then there's a record after that in the '70s that that he did that Harrison did. Um, it's a it's it was to uh, to aid Bangladesh. It's like a live concert in New York, and uh, there's some great stories online about how he invited Dylan to play this benefit show, and Dylan was like, had you know was on a hiatus, and he hadn't been he hadn't been doing anything, and so he was like he couldn't get a solid yes from from Dylan. So he kind of like left the door open for for Dylan to show up um, at this show uh, at like Madison Square Gardens, and so uh, he didn't know until the day of that whether uh, Dylan was going to show. Dylan did show. He was super nervous because he hadn't been performing live in in the public. So and so that's another record that I'd like to listen to because I know there's a lot of Dylan cuts on it. That was also the first the first benefit concert really that 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 anyone had ever done any celebrity musician had ever done and uh kind of set the stage for like live aid in the 80s and a bunch of stuff there's a really interesting little history with george harrison right after the beatles and what he did
0: that wasn't the i mean that, that would be right after his motorcycle accident right uh dylan's motorcycle accident
1: i actually don't know a lot about dylan was he in a motorcycle accident
0: yeah there was this huge uh incident and in, i'm gonna sound completely ignorant here because the timeline's wrong but i believe in the 60s he got into some horrific motorcycle accident and he just like, he almost died. And he, I don't remember all of the events, but he basically at the same time decided to stop doing music. I think maybe just, he was debilitated, couldn't do it anyways. And then ended up jamming with the, what became known as the band um, in the basement. And so there's these, this record called, the basement tapes and it's just Dylan and the band jamming and then that's what brought him back into music, but he was like out of it for a considerable amount of time
1: yeah man I love that shit I love the histories that surround the, the stories that surround some of these some of these records that's cool i, I didn't I didn't know that it probably was around that time because this was like what the Beatles broke up in like 1970 or 71 something like that and this all took place in the early early 70s so it could have been very long after
0: in the previous podcast that i had with uh, my friend lamb we did a whole episode where we studied dylan that's why i happen to know so much uh there was also a period of time where he just walked away from music so it could have been that time too and then he came back a born again christian
1: oh okay crazy you know i, I have not gone through a dylan phase yet i have like a book of i think i have a book of dylan lyrics which i haven't looked at it just when I go into something and then, then I then I go full full on, I haven't I just haven't done that with Dylan yet, which is weird. Thirty nine years old, haven't?
0: <laughs> hey, you get to everything in your own time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm saving it for when I'm for for when I'm seven decades into my life.
0: Well, Dylan's a big digestible too, man. That's a lot of albums and a lot of history.
1: Yeah, I mean, God, there's how don't how many records did he as does he have out there?
0: I think over thirty. So, Jeez, man.
1: But, um, on the, uh, on the all things most past, um, record too, he's got like Clapton on there and, uh, and I've always liked George, George's uh, guitar playing his slide guitar playing and, um, that first song on there, um, what is it called? Um, I'll have you anytime. I think it's called, there's a great guitar solo, little kind of solo on there. And I was like, that's gotta be George, but. When I actually did the research, it, it, it wasn't... I think it was Eric Clapton that had come in there and sort of mimicked George's um, sort of bendy guitar style. But yeah, cool album with so many songs on there.
0: Oh, you can definitely tell there's at least one or two songs in there where Ringo's playing drums because there's just that signature Ringo sound, that kind of collapsing drum sound of the...
1: Did he get Ringo in there? I have no idea. I, I don't. I'm know.
0: guessing. I didn't look at the linear notes, but it sounded like it. <laughs> mm. If not, it was somebody definitely trying to play like Ringo.
1: It definitely has the sort of, uh, um, sort of, kind of pseudo Beatles sound on some of those tracks. Maybe, maybe that Beatles sound is the George component of of the Beatles.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine what that's like to try to walk away from that sound or that. You know, yours this quintessential group and then try to set up a separate identity
1: i feel like george was already kind of primed for it from what i I could kind of read about it that he was uh, he tried to walk away from the beatles already at one point and came back around the let it be period and i don't know if i'm totally right about that but and then uh i don't know maybe he was one of the guys that left the band when they broke up i'm not sure but the dude had you know a triple album waiting waiting to be uh to be recorded so I think he was probably eager to get back to work on his own. That's my feeling on it at least.
0: Did you feel that sense of uh having to establish your own sense of identity after day one broke up?
1: Um yeah that's that's uh that's a good question. Um yeah you know when you're in a creative project like that band uh, day one symphony for so long you you do feel like you've you you've kind of been let out let out the let out of the cage let out of the gates and i had a lot of sort of things that had been going on in my life that were influencing my own writing my own personal writing and um and i feel like it kind of naturally came out in some of the early records that i did uh right after dos broke up and mainly that was because uh i had I was pretty jaded on San Jose at that point, and I uh, had been traveling to Malaysia, Southeast Asia, and um, and the stuff that I was hearing out there, the 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 instrumentation, the 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 type of music that um, I was experiencing out there, away from the pop world, just kind of intrinsically went into what I was doing. Um, I got more, got more, a little bit more hippie, a little more drum a little more hand drum uh, oriented um, and that kind of melded into the songwriting I was doing at the time. Honestly, Chad, it's a bit of a blur. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've smoked a lot of weed since then, but yeah, it it was something that I, I don't think I was, I was, I was terribly, I wasn't a conscious choice. It was just, just organically came out at that point. Day one was re- really kind of a controlled, very highly articulated band the way we wrote together it was different when i was just by myself it's like i can do whatever i want and i always did all of the audio editing and like sort of the 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 production stuff or a lot of it at least for the day one stuff so it was just it felt natural to kind of go into that after after dos
0: and what actually got you to malaysia the first time how did you end up in malaysia
1: That's weird. Right. Um, I went to school, uh, as a, as a, as a late teenager, um, with, uh, um, a a dude who was from Malaysia and we became good friends. Um, really good friends. We were like acting buddies and acting class and stuff, did plays. and, And we just kind of followed each other's, um, sort of collegiate careers as, as, as we moved on to different universities. He was in London and then he went to Malaysia and went back to his country and At a certain point, I was like uh, let's uh let's let's meet up in your spot you know so a friend of mine and I traveled there and saw Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur for the first time, and he was active still in the theater there, so um he knew I did music and on that trip, he asked me if I would score a play that he was doing. It was an Edgar Allan Poe production and um the the compensation for it was he would buy me a ticket back to malaysia because him and i just got along really well and uh, i think it, it excited him to have like a piece of his american life hanging out in in malaysia so so that that came to fruition and i i went back in 2008 the summer of 2008 and um on that second visit i had um, I had, I had networked a little bit and got myself some shows out there and gotten myself actually, strangely, a, quite a good, um, PR representative who I'm still friends with, who was at my wedding. And he, he kind of pulled out all the stops, got us on, got me uh, on TV and promoted, um, uh, a series of shows. And, um, that sort of opened the door that trip in 2008. On that trip, I also met uh, my wife, which I, who I you know, had a long-distance relationship with. Came back in '09, and then uh, this all kind of intertwines with the uh, DOS car accident that happened in 2006. I had a, um, uh, a settlement check from that car accident we were in, and I decided I would use it to move abroad. And so I moved abroad and lived there for two and a half years.
0: What was that like? Like, just I mean, imagine the culture was completely different.
1: Yeah, <laughs> putting it mildly, um, it's so different. It 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 makes me a stranger in my own country here. You know, it gives me it, It's given me a really interesting perspective on America, but um, also, uh, you know, it's a, it's an extremely generous, lovely. Um warm culture the people are really are really uh, happy and 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 kind of soft and sweet there in a way that i don't always experience here in the states where people I feel are a little bit more individualistic and a bit harder and the food there is just uh is kind of just beyond it's just it's it's insanely good um and it's so multifaceted that it's been very almost impossible to package it to the West because it's this fusion of Indian, Chinese, Malay food all, all rolled into many, many, many different types of dishes. So the food options when you're there, it's just 24-7. Do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want to get this? Do you want to get that? Extremely foodie culture. And, um, you know, obviously the country is... Um, Predominantly Muslim, so you know, living there, I was, you know, I was living around and among uh, Muslims and um, and and Buddhists and uh, and Hindus as well. So you get this really interesting melange of uh, religious cultures uh, all colliding in this one place, and it's really hot all the time, and it's tropical and extremely exotic compared to san jose so uh it's 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 something that's just stuck now as i guess it's kind of a part of me i kind of consider it my second home now because i married a malaysian so um i i'm luck i feel grateful to have that connection like I my wife and i can go back and be with their family and um i i can enjoy that the 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 beauty of that culture kind of whenever we want to so
0: and is your wife muslim
1: she's not she's uh she's she's really not any religion whatsoever but she's chinese malaysian so uh typically that's how it works there is if you're chinese you're christian slash buddhist unless you marry into uh, a, a malay family then 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 you become muslim and uh the indian population is generally hindu Although there's lots of var- little variations here and there.
0: And Kuala Lumpur, that was where you were living the predominant time that you were there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a big city. I think it's like, I don't know, three, seven, I don't know how many millions of people. But there's like a little kind of a, um, a, a borough off, uh, off to the south and west called Pataling Jaya. And that's where, where we lived. But it's, it's part of the Kuala Lumpur um, metropolitan area. And it's kind of like a, it's like a mega city, you know, it's, I don't know if you've ever been to Hong Kong or Beijing or Paris. It's like, you know, it's like one of those just, uh, massive cities. The only analog maybe in the States would be maybe New York city and to some extent, maybe LA, but, um, yeah, cool. It's like a big giant metropolis in the jungle all these hills and mountains around it it's cool
0: so rather people would think you moved to malaysia to get away from like city life but you actually upgraded city life to an even bigger city
1: yeah yeah that's true um and and you know you can always you can always pop out of um of kl and 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 then you're just like in like the jungle cuts man like the villages out there and um And uh, what they call orang asli, which are the people that just live in the jungle, they're not Buddhists, they're not Hindu, they're not Muslim, they're just jungle people. And so, yeah, that's the it's it's like I guess that's the equivalent of us in the Bay Area going out to the Sierras, except for no, uh, there there are no forest people
0: out there. (laughs) (laughs) So living in a society that's got three major religions that are maybe not necessarily known to get along peacefully, but it sounds like they relatively did. I mean, especially when you look at the political situation in the United States right now, where we seem to not be getting along. Did you learn anything observing that society while you were there?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You, you know, um, the politics there is different. It's a bit, it's quite a bit different. It's, there, there are some similarities in the way that the Former, I have to say, former, because uh, Malaysia just had an election and they they ousted the 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 lead political party who has dominated um, politics in that country since it was uh, declared a country. They just ousted that group because that group had gotten just ridiculously corrupt. Um, you can read about it in the papers. There's, it's uh, there's a huge scandal, and they they kind of laundered and embezzled. Millions and millions of dollars of state funds, but um, the similarities are are kind of interesting because the power, the powerful political elite there were all, always kind of relied on the, the rural vote, and they have they have and had um, a quite a an affirmative action policy going there where um, they sort of uh, incentivized um, just uh, one certain race because they felt like you know, it was the Malay race. They felt, kind of felt like the Malay race was falling behind economically. And so there are some laws that, that were on the books to um, give them preferential treatment. But that, the, aside from that similarity, like, you know, the, relying on the rural vote, which I kind of feel like Republicans do here, it's a different ballgame in terms of the divisiveness. Like, I never felt like Malaysians were divided. Like, it never felt that way. Uh, it felt like the government was always kind of attempting to divide people based on religion, usually. But I never felt like the political discussions, I mean, I never really had any there. People were, people were just like, ah, this government sucks. And that was it. Whereas here, it's different. It's, it's, it's like uh, always sort of this omnipresent fog in the background that's, Always there, and uh, this noise that's always there here, and it's interesting because they don't really have, they don't really have the same First Amendment rights there. Like the, the previous government was pretty harsh on the media and anyone who got really outspoken, kind of get like hammered out, hammered down like a nail. Whereas here, everyone's just arguing all the time, and um, it's been interesting to observe my wife's. Perspective. She just, she's just like, this is insane. You guys are always, you guys are always bickering. <laughs> I'm like, I guess we are. Hmm. I never noticed that. <laughs> well,
0: it's, it's like we we're always bickering, but it's because, in some degree, because everybody has a megaphone. You know, it's it's everything that we say is amplified so much. It seems to not only amplify sound of the voice, you know, the reach of the voice, but also amplify the tone and the meaning. You know, one person says one thing and then it, by the time it gets to the fourth person, now it's, it, it's meant to mean something five times worse than maybe was originally intended.
1: Yeah, you That's know, a difficult, like kind of, that's a difficult dynamic to, uh, to, to have to, to be able to function in, um, in your life, you know, when you're in the States, I feel like, um, I don't know how it is in other countries I just know, I just know Malaysia to some extent and in the U.S. but. It's definitely pretty grating. Um, I kind of enjoyed, you know, when I'm over there. Actually, they're more, they're, they're more interested in what the hell's going on over here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tell you the truth. And uh, that was another interesting perspective is, you know, when Obama was uh, president and everyone, you know, I, have, I think half my family's Republicans. So they, they hated him. And um, but uh, over Malaysia, they're like this guy. This is legit. They liked him a lot, you know. And I also felt like when I've been traveling the world um, on tour and stuff, generally Obama was received very favorably. But here, uh, he's like the Antichrist, I guess. So um, for some people, which is a weird thing for me to. It's always been difficult for me to kind of unpack that. I don't. I don't understand. Maybe I'm just too fucking liberal. I guess. <laughs>
0: And did you all the time that you were on tour? Did you ever feel the awkwardness of being American? Oh
1: hell yeah, all the time, especially at the airport too. Like this certain, you know, I don't want to talk too much shit, but um, yeah, I'm 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 very consciously aware of um, that I'm from America, and I and I try to play against it because there are stereotypes. There's there are stereotypes of travelers that the Chinese have a stereotype of kind of rolling up on buses and overwhelming like a tourist destination. And uh, British, uh, you know, in in Southeast Asia tend to wear this sort of, (laughs) I don't know, this costume that I can't describe, uh, (laughs) where you can identify them really easily. Oh, they must be British tourists. And Americans have this reputation of being kind of loud and boisterous and like uh, making conversation, which among themselves which almost seems like they're trying to include everyone around them as well so i've i've always tried to play against those stereotypes and just kind of be like quiet not loud and open and try to listen as much as possible but yeah to answer your question especially on the last tour that i did with low roar um we got we got asked a lot about you know what's going on? It was more of this sort of disbelief, like why, why, why this, why this guy? I don't want I don't want to mention his name, but why'd you guys elect this guy? And, and really there's no answer <laughs> to that question. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've experienced that Chad, but I mean, what do you fucking say? I don't know um, what to say. So uh, yeah, it's, I haven't haven't felt too embarrassed to be American, but uh, I've definitely felt a lot more embarrassed to be American after the 2016 election than in previous years traveling around.
0: When I went to Australia a long time ago, we had just elected um, Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor of California.
1: Yeah.
0: So I, I kind of understand to a small degree what you're talking about. Not necessarily that I was... Severely embarrassed by him or anything, but just that question of people going, really, <laughs> and it, it, that that was the experience with Schwarzenegger. Was it, the questions were either like, really, you you elected an an actor? To which I said, it's not the first time we've done it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, yeah, I get it. It's like uh, it's like uh, Secretary of Defense Steven Seagal. You know, it, it would just be like. <laughs> the hell is this i mean you know uh vice president norris chuck norris as the vice i mean yeah i think that would th- that throws people off a little bit
0: and what i find fascinating because in all the time that i've been doing podcasting and even in my like my personal facebook and stuff like that i don't really assert any political opinions i try to keep my political opinions to myself i feel like there's just enough people exuding political opinions into the world every second of the day that i don't need to feed to it
1: yeah well i i commend you for being able to uh to withdraw from that fight because uh god i haven't i don't feel like i've been able to i've like my whole family's now knows just how much my brother and i dislike donald trump and uh and it's caused a lot of problems and, and it's, and and it's just now it's just, I feel like it's just, we're trying to manage that whilst staying uh, close with our family, which is, you know, maybe that's kind of like the heart of the battle right there. Like, how can, how can we love and all at the same time have disagreements, at, you know, at the same time, uh, maybe that's the crux of it. If we can kind of master that or figure that out, maybe like that's the key to getting through any time in, in which there's, you know, heavy political division like there is now.
0: There's this some shift that happened within our lifetime where, at least in, in what I've perceived, where we went from having opinions to the opinions becoming our identities. So that when someone attacks your opinion, they're attacking you personally. And, and I think that is not to our benefit because that's what leads to these ugly fights.
1: Damn it. I feel so guilty right now for, uh,
0: <laughs> you just, you just, you just told
1: me, you just psycho, psychoanalyzed me right now. I feel like I've done that to, uh, to um, some of my family member, members, if they listen to this, they'll be like, oh yeah, yes, you have.
0: <laughs> well, I think we're, we're all guilty of it. You know, the only way that I would, I would have any clue is because I've done it before as well but you know i i don't remember the exact post that you put up but you did um at one point i think you've done it a few times you've kind of called god i hate using these terms but you've called out your fellow liberals for being too extreme it's something that i've perceived as well too and i've seen even people on the right saying the same thing where it's like liberals have become mean and angry and for me i was like i was really bothered with the when there was that Nazi that was punched in the face. That was, it was kind of like this YouTube video that was going around. And obviously I'm, I'm not afraid to say right now that I'm not in support of Nazis in any way, but I do believe that, uh, punching people in the face doesn't solve anything.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's just like, it's like, that's kind of fundamental basic. You punch someone in the face, that person's going to punch you back or, Stab you or shoot you. It you know it's just violence kind of begets more violence, but I I agree with you. Obviously, I mean, I've tried to temper the sort of post political posts that I put on social media. Obviously, it's it, it matters to me, uh, and so sometimes I I I will make some sort of statement, but um, but yeah, I I don't, I I you you know I I don't think that um, going. To the extreme of uh, of 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 the argument, it's going to help anyone, you know, like calling someone a Nazi, or I think I think that's the, maybe the, what you were referring to. Um, I see that I see that on on the left sometimes, and I'm and I'm just I just kind of shake my head because uh, one of the things that I um, notice about my conservative family is uh, they're 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 sick and tired of being labeled. And um, I can respect that because they're very sweet, nice people, uh, at least as far as I can tell. Um, and and uh, I don't think that it helps when, when, when we pull off into camps and just start labeling people willy-nilly with no proof, no truth to back it up. Um, just because they voted for someone uh, doesn't necessarily make them this way or that way. And it goes both ways. And I definitely see it on the liberal side because uh, the liberal side is at a disadvantage right now. And so they're kind of kicking and clawing their way back. And I just feel like it's a little off-putting, to me at least. Like I always try to remain in the clearing if I can, you know, in the forest clearing so I can get a bit more perspective. So I'm not just surrounded by trees and I don't see the bigger picture that's why i don't really like the words like liberal and conservative either i think they're it's like it's the result of the fact that there's only two political parties that we're voting for so obviously you must be conservative and you must be liberal it's just like that's not how life works there's so much gray area
0: right and i would say even those those labels don't mean anything anymore i mean People that would use the term conservative are, are not so conservative in certain beliefs. And the people that are liberal are not. I mean, liberal goes back to the idea of liberty. And so punching a Nazi in the face isn't really standing up for freedom of speech, is it?
1: Absolutely not. It you know, reminds me of, uh, of, of, I used to, you know, to bring it back to music. I, I always thought, like, well, people ask you what genre you are, you know? So what do you do? And people ask me now, you know, and I've never known how to answer that question because just don't look at it as though it's blues, jazz, rock, you know, back in the day when you go into like Rasputin Records or or whatever, the, there were these like main classifications <laughs> or alternative is the one that really gets me. It's like what is that even, you know? You know, uh you can't this people Music, people, everything is not that easily defined. I mean, I understand the necessity of labels and genres, but uh, yeah, seldom does does one thing adhere to that, you know, completely.
0: Yeah, I remember trying to organize CDs and going, "What do I do with this?" <laughs> no, where do you put Led Zeppelin?
1: Where does more Sheba go? <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's so many things that are just so far beyond it. <laughs> I mean have you felt that yourself when trying when trying to describe your music to people you're like well it's kind of and then just this cloud of words coming out
1: and it maybe it's easier to describe it uh things to people now because they're like listening to spotify and they're just kind of being inundated with just tons of stuff and everything's kind of genre bending and jumping from place to place but uh before a digital streaming and this kind of oversaturated period that we're in uh yeah it was hard because you know you might be talking to someone who who listens to rock and uh and they're like so what do you sound like and 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 i mean like the the word <laughs> how to, i don't know how to describe um Sampled drums reversed with synth bass and acoustic guitar. All you know, I don't know how to describe that. Uh, it's not conventional, so uh, I guess that's that's when you put it in alternative. <laughs>
0: that's when you <laughs> right. use that
1: label. I guess
0: it's not alternative to the mainstream. It's alternative to labels itself.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: I want to talk a little bit about that oversaturation thing there. What was that experience like? I mean, like as a musician, obviously, as, as someone listening to music, I saw that come across. But as someone putting out music, as that started to happen, what was that experience like for you?
1: It was shitty, to tell you the truth. Uh, it, it was like you're chasing some, some, some finish line that, that is always being moved, and, uh, and you're, 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 you're jumping from idea to idea. Um, as far as how to how to how to market yourself, um, that seems to be constantly changing because the industry itself is in such disarray, and the norms that existed for so long are have been completely are dissolving in front of your face. So I was more in that sort of frame of mind before I went to live in Malaysia. I was like, you know, social media obsessed um platform a uh, social media platform obsessed uh how to ma- maximize exposure you know counting views and just like kind of going mental o- over it uh thinking that somehow um without a manager and um a booking agent and sort of all of the the, the fundamental um business team that you need to market music without that that i could somehow um, you know, get myself uh, positioned to be seen, and it was making me go fucking crazy. Uh, I, I, I was, I was, my priorities were completely in the wrong place. I was not self confident. I was, um, I was looking to these cues to be confident, and these cues just keep, keep changing and changing. So I don't know. That's one of the things that after I got back from Malaysia, I. I just had I had grown out of it and kind of made some mental changes um, as far as my relationship to music is concerned and kind of decided that I don't need, I don't have anything that I have to prove to anyone and that no one owes me anything at the same time and um, that by not caring about all of these extraneous things, I'd probably be happier and more productive, as, as Tom York once said.
0: When I was talking to Ryan Hernandez, he described you, I, I shouldn't say described you, what he said uh, on the mention of your name is, that's a guy who's got it all figured out. And I think that what you just said might be what he's touching on. I mean, do you feel differently now that you have that mindset? Do you actually feel the benefit of that?
1: Well, I, I do. Um, I mean, it's interesting he would say that. I mean, he, a lot of these, a lot of these, these, in, in, these musicians that uh, I came up with around the Bay Area, South Bay, we're, we were all kind of chasing the same dream. And uh, I, I don't know. I don't think I've ever felt like I've had it figured out. But I think that what i what i did figure out was what you know, i just mentioned which is that um you got to take control of things your priorities um if you, me me putting putting a, a, an album out it shouldn't be dependent on what the result will be when that album comes out and for a lot of people at least young people i would say probably more often in music it's so so important to have the promo lined up and uh, get it out on spotify and the playlists and the blogs and um uh hopefully you know management and touring and all that good stuff and i never had any of that i never had any of that and and that was like the most tragic thing to me circa 2010 and now You know, years later, uh, I don't give a fuck about that stuff. I just don't give a shit. Like, And so in that sense, yeah, I haven't figured out. Like, I'm going to continue to put out music until I can't. And um, if people like it and listen to it, great. If I'm able to promote it, uh, I will. If I'm not, I don't care. So, like, all I'm interested in is the legacy. Really, that's it. And you know there's probably a lot of people who would argue what's what's what good is the legacy if no one's ever heard it you know well again i don't I don't care, so in that sense, I guess I have it figured out, but you know, do what i would I love to reach more people obviously, yeah, of course, um but I'm at peace with uh what 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 the current conditions are and my musical output in life and et cetera and the balance of things and the fact that I've also diverted some of my attention like you know over to you know having a job and spreading my talents out a little bit more not just all focused in one place and for whatever reason you know maybe that attitude um, got me you know hooked into a new project which i don't know if you've read about but uh, joining up with low roar um which is that side of music, which is a little bit more plugged in for sure, Uh, has more of a business infrastructure around it. It's like, you know, um, it's a, a legit project that tours. Maybe it was because I said, fuck it, I don't give a shit that I ended up doing that. So I don't know how to trace it all, but it's been a weird ride for sure.
0: So taking all of that into account, what is music to you now?
1: Um, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's what I'm feeling in the moment, uh, I think is the only way to, for me to come at it. Um, I'm working on a variety of like projects and, and the theme of this podcast is creative minds. I've spent, you know, decades living with my own creativity, uh, and, Um, trying to remain inspired and I think kind of what I've deduced over the years is that is that uh, it's what you do in the moment it's it's um, and and that's kind of an esoteric concept I think for someone budding just starting out to understand what I'm trying to say there is that you know when I was a teenager I spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours playing guitar and attempting to multi-track record with like two boom boxes on cassette tape. Uh, and then that gradually led to um, digital workstation, uh, which gradually led to um, me being in a band, which led to me singing every day, every day, every day, every day, all the time, all the time, all the time, and writing songs all the time, all the time, all the time. And, and then you start, you know, multiplying that over the years and then there was a phase there uh i i i swear there's I a point to this but uh there was a phase there where i thought I, I just had to be high all the time to to do music so i just like yeah man i'm out there like in touch with the with the uh the invisible uh you know whatever <laughs> the <laughs> the spirits i don't know um and uh, and, I, and there was a point where I got really into um, uh, the author Haruki Murakami, who's written a little bit about cre- his creativity and how regimented it is, and how he gets up at the same time and in the morning and goes through this routine. And he's clean, and there's no alcohol or drugs involved. Um, and you start to synthesize all of these um, different techniques with regard to your creativity. And now um, I'm at this stage where if i'm if i'm if i'm having a few um glasses of whiskey while doing the vocal tracks then then the uh then the vocal take uh has a little bit of whiskey david on it you know and uh and i'm okay with that and i don't judge it cuz i have sort of several spaces that i do music uh, if i'm in one of the spaces and the bass isn't there um i'm not scrambling around going god i need to get the bass like i pick up what i need to and um i vibe off that so for me, it's, it's about, it, there's, there is, there is some structure to it. It's like, well, the vocals for this project is this is, that's the most important um, piece that we're missing right now. So, uh, so for the, that next two weeks, I will pick up the guitar whenever I can and sing, which is one of the reasons why, you know, you see the George Harrison stuff there on Facebook is because basically I'm just keeping my voice fresh and then the next day i'll have a you know 2 hour session laying down scratch vocals for a song that's kind of how it works for me nowadays it's 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 more organic uh it's more spontaneous it's sort of utilizing the things that i've practiced over the years and just laying it down and also there's also you know i i've been backing away considerably from perfection you know i think that's also pretty essential because you know, that's another thing you learn over years and years of doing something is that you'll always want to change stuff. Uh, you'll always want to remix. You'll always want to retrack. But when you're listening to other people's stuff, you're, you know, often, for, at least for me, I'm just like, wow, I love the way that, that that bass sounds fucked up like that. Or I like how glitchy this, you know, these, these drums are edited and how messy it sounds. And they didn't clean up any of the audio. And I think you can only really do that if you're in the moment, almost like you're meditating. You just you just, you just feel confident and you know that what you're laying down in that moment comes from your years of experience. Uh, you know what you're doing and, um, and to trust that. Uh, kind of more, than, more, more of a feeling than anything, really.
0: And do you think that age was partially responsible for bringing you to that realization.
1: Uh, there's no, there's, yeah, there's no question that, that about that. Um, you know, you, you, you go through periods of your life where you haven't really experienced any kind of traumas or anything, you know, you haven't lived if you, if you will. And, uh, you know, my, my, my dad, there's another project I'm working on. You know, my dad passed away, uh, last year. And, um, and um my good friend Steve Barry who was uh the drummer for Day One Symphony his father passed away suddenly uh the the year prior to that and uh while i was on tour i was you know uh i was dealing with the death of my father on tour it was uh i was on the road almost like immediately like after he died in march 15th 2017 and uh, two and a half weeks later, I was in Mexico City to start touring with Low Roar. and um, so there's a lot of long drives that I was thinking about my dad, and um, I uh, I was thinking a lot about Steve too because he, he had he had gone through this trauma and he he wasn't he hadn't been open about it, so I knew he was suffering I and mean, he's probably suffering silently, and um, so when I saw him again after the first tour in June. I said, why don't we do something together uh on this theme? And to answer your question, I I feel like age and maturity really does play a role in that trying to take on a subject like that, you know, the death of, of, of someone close to you, uh with all the, the sort of beauty and thorns of that come along with it, um, the unresolved feelings that come along with it. I don't think I would have been capable of doing something like that in my 20s. It would have been all over the place and a bit of a mess. But now I feel like him and I are old old enough and mature enough to be able to sort of um, put some constraints on the project and and put out something, write something that's meaningful. So yeah, I do think age has a lot to do with creativity.
0: And do you think that approaching a project like that with um something so important to you personally obviously that's probably one of the most important expressions that you could probably attempt do you find that that motivates it more or in some ways that that puts more pressure onto it you know like this has to be good because it's for my dad um
1: and <clears throat> i think it puts a certain level of pressure on it but um but again you know uh you know because because i'm 39 and i've just been singing for so long. And, and, you know, if there's anything I'm slightly insecure about is it's, it's developing lyrics and stuff, but, but no, I feel like, I feel, I feel like, uh, like I know exactly where it should be and how it should be represented. It's, it's meant to be a conduit into sort of the, the, the harder, emotions that him and i have had to go through and deal with so you know i kind of just go into there into that spot into that room if you will and just you know draw from that and it's a very specific place so it it seems to flow pretty naturally
0: how do you imagine that you could have dealt with the loss without having you know something tangible like that to work with
1: yeah i don't know um it it it, it is, it's not a feeling that goes away. That's what I've learned about it. Um, is that you're always kind of reminded in some way or another of of your your parents out in the world. You you know it's it's hard. It doesn't go away. And so I, I I don't I don't know how I'd be if if we hadn't embarked on this. I know that 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 the closeness that it's that it's uh, that it engendered between uh, Steve and I is maybe part of. The healing process like we can kind of commiserate over this shared feeling um and i think that's helpful a lot uh to be able to sort of focus our expression on this um this like i said this trauma that we both experienced Um, but i don't really know how i deal with it if if i weren't i mean i feel like music's kind of the only way i feel the most comfortable dealing with Something like that. I feel like it was kind of inevitable that that we would that I would do something like that. But it just happened that Steve was, you know, is kind of doing going through the same motions, and so and I I felt like it's perfect for us to do this together on that subject. You know, one one of my favorite albums of the past couple of years is that Carrie and Lowell album from Sufjan Stevens, which deals with the death of his mother and. uh I don't know that that album had a really profound effect on me when I first heard it, which was, I think, before at least a year or two before my dad had passed away. Definitely after um, I listened to that, you know, I was, I kind of felt like I was recovering from his death by listening to that album in my living room and, you know, drinking some scotch and like just crying it out because such a touching, beautiful, perfect expression of however he feels about um, his mom passing away. I knew that I didn't want what Steve and I to do, what Steve and I are doing um, to sound like that, because I can't touch that. It's just gorgeous. But it sort of put it in my mind that, like, maybe we can maybe we can get out of this through music. Maybe that, that'll work. So we're trying, and I feel like it's, it's working for us.
0: There's a new young album called Tonight's the Night, and... It was written, or I should say not even written, it was just straight up recorded right after one of their really close roadies and another good friend died, like one after another. And on the other end of the spectrum, that album just sounds like somebody falling apart. And I've always found that very cathartic to listen to. So I can only imagine that making it would be a way to, I don't know, to move through that. It always seems like the grief that I've gone through in my life, it always seems like when you have something tangible, and maybe it's just those of us with creative minds, but I feel like for anyone, having something tangible to work with, because those feelings are just so intangible, it almost bounces it out in, in a small way to where you can almost move it to a different part of your brain. Do you experience that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been through. I feel. I feel like I've. I've. I feel like I've gone. There's been so many permutations of, 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 of sadness and grief and anger too, um, because people aren't perfect. And uh, and you know, my dad had a lot of flaws. So, um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, when I when he passed away, I was like on tour. I was actually rehearsing the tour for the tour um, in North American canada mexico european tour um which ended in la actually uh for that month like the first rehearsal i had with with ryan uh who's who leads that project was at my dad's house uh and he was you know he was still alive it was like i don't know maybe maybe uh, six or seven days before he went into the hospital and, uh, all the t- all the while, while he was in the hospital, I was rehearsing this, um, music. And, uh, and then when he passed away, I think I took, died on a Wednesday. I took one day off by Friday. I was back and, um, it was just emotional for everyone. Uh, it was emotional for, for, uh, for, for Ryan, um, and his father, uh, we were, rehearsing at Ryan's dad's, um, condo. And, uh, it, it was just, it was just this weird, I don't know. It was this weird energy that, um, that, that, that we all knew had to be directed back into what we were doing. Uh, and of course, you know, you know, Ryan's written a lot of sad songs and so maybe it's a place where that, feeling really did belong um but it gave everything a new hue you know a new color and uh two and a half weeks later we're in Mexico City and and this thing just went and went and went and went and went so yeah I I had this mechanism at the time to channel it all into uh, as grief-stricken as I was I had to still get on stage every night and um Incidentally, we did, we did uh, a song from that Carrie and Lowell album. We had two shows at The Independent when we came around through San Francisco. And we did uh, a cover of one of those songs from, from the uh, Sufjan Stevens record. And that was the only time we did it. We, we, we got it ready and we saved it. <clears throat> and then we did it one night. And that was, that, was, that was sort of for my dad. You know, he wanted, he wanted to go see me play on this tour and he, he just didn't you know make it so yeah and so I had I had, I had all this time on the road uh, to work to work through it but you know it, it you know it, it goes through phases so when I got off tour then I then I had a different then I had a different period of time with which to deal with it being home again and uh, having his his house empty or you know not he's not there anymore. So. And then another tour, and then, you know, it just kind of, it kind of just keeps going. Life just keeps going, and, and you just sort of search for little ways to um, process it. And there's really no template for it. But yeah, to, to answer your question, like, yeah, I, I feel like that for me personally. Um, I get really, really aggravated and stressed out when I realize that I haven't been doing music for like a week or two or something. Cause that happens occasionally, you know, you're a writer. I'm sure you don't write every single day, but, um, I, I, I'll start to get mm, upset and, and a little bit on edge and I'll realize, Oh, that's because I haven't done, you know, I haven't done any music lately or in the last few weeks. So I know that that's like this place where I can go and, uh, and, and constantly find a way to get out my anxieties and stuff it's always seemed to have worked for me i guess when it doesn't i don't know what i'll do
0: it's hard to balance that (laughs) time that you need away sometimes from projects with the time that you need it for personal reasons as well you know your sanity and your your uh, i don't know your just your sense of who you are come from some one thing but then you can burn yourself on it too
1: yeah it's really it can be really easy to do to, to, to the burning out yourself out on it it can be really easy to do when I was uh living in uh, Malaysia i I one of my sorry of like, I'm going over there to record a record is what I'm gonna do so I went over there and I had my, all my gear and my my wife had uh, moved to a new apartment and, and she had you know thought about having a studio for me so she had there's this room that I had and and I worked I worked like a son of a bitch on that record and I just kept pushing, 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 pushing. Uh, and I felt like I just kind of pushed myself, just buried myself in the ground. And when I finally came back, um, I released one little EP there, which I don't feel like it's, it's okay. It's got some, some okay songs on it. Uh, it's highly produced. I just was finding a new identity for myself at the time. I don't, necessarily like what I did entirely but it's something that it's a it's a snapshot in time um but I had all this music some really great stuff still have it and uh and I thought that was going to be the record uh when I come back I'll finish it um but it never happened I never felt comfortable about it I felt like just wasn't quite what I wanted to do it was this in this in between moment in my life where Maybe my tastes were changing. My, uh, I was I was confused about who I was and what I wanted to say, and so I never had the confidence to put it out. Um, But the weird thing is, I I, is that uh, I was I was traveling a lot when I was there. So we were going all over the place, all over Asia. You know, uh, Myanmar and uh, Bali and Vietnam and Cambodia, um, just every single. Uh, Southeast Asian country and uh, when I would go out there I would record video and uh, and then I'd come back to the apartment in in KL and I would cut the video and I would use the sounds and the 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 textures and the audio that I got from these trips and I'll cut that into music for my videos and I gave it some name like travels by night or something and uh and it's it all, all that still lives on on youtube but i realized like uh that's the album that's that's what i did out there that's what i that's what i did automatically without thinking about it and not and not judging it so um so yeah when i came back i was like that's the record and and i pulled all that audio out of the video i looked at all those sessions and I restructured it and I, um, and I, and I recomposed things and I finished some of, some of the stuff that, uh, I had done. And, um, so I have, a, I have this record basically of what I'm trying to say is, uh, that no one really knows about except for a few people that I actually had printed like 300 copies of it that I'm still uh, looking for, for, for a little window where I can put that out. And so that's kind of, kind of be the next thing for me. Um, but I'm not, I'm not like trying to make a big ceremony out of it. I'm just uh, I just, uh, looking for a little window where I can maybe play a show and, uh, let everyone know that it's, that it exists and then get it out into the digital realm, uh, and then turn my focus, uh, back to the work that I'm doing with, uh, Steve and, and, and Low Roar. So,
0: well, the point of this whole podcast for me is to start to use, um, to utilize use this maybe negative word to utilize the wisdom of other people and the people around me to learn how to become a better person. Mm. And in that quest, what book do you think I should read next?
1: That's terrible. That's, 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 that's you're asking me the worst question. Cause I'm just like, like piles of <laughs> books that I'm not reading. Uh, um, I don't know. You, you know, there, there are books that stick with me that, that I, that I, that I, that I've read, you know, uh, in, Different times in my life, um, Hard Boiled Wonderland" and "The End of the World" by Hikaru Murakami jumps out. I really love that, that book. Uh, I've always liked this this book. You probably, maybe you've read it because um, you seem like a well read dude. Uh, I, have you ever read "Labyrinths"?
0: Yes, Borges. <laughs> that book
1: is that book is is fucked up in such a cool way. I've
0: read Hard Boiled Wonderland" too. That's a wonderful book.
1: You have so yeah. I don't have any contemporary books. To to throw at you just because I haven't I, I haven't been reading I just uh, <laughs> I've been just I've just been looking at BBC News all the time. It's terrible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, David, would you like to tell everyone listening who you are and uh, where they can find you and plug whatever you would like to plug?
1: My name is David Knight, and uh, I play music. And uh, you can find my music at music.sleepcomabath.com. I'm also in a band called low roar based out of Poland slash San Francisco Bay area. And you can find that at lowroarmusic.com. And then of course you can track me down on Instagram and Twitter, which I never go on and Facebook. And I'm not on Snapchat or any of that stuff. So you know, like, I'm not a millennial. So I guess I'm banned.
0: One of the best ways to support a podcast is to go over to the podcast app that you're using, especially if it is Apple Podcasts, and take five minutes to sit down and rate and review the show. Just give it a star rating, give it a paragraph, letting people know what value you get out of the show, because that's how we communicate to the world what this show is about if they haven't listened to it before. And it's also how we communicate to guests or possible guests what the show is that is inviting them on is about and what people think of it so please take the time to rate and review us thanks